The Start On Demand. On demand. Would you ever consider flying less, flying as in air travel, or not flying at all to help the environment? Many are calling for people to turn less often to air travel because of the growing amount of emissions airplanes are pumping into the air. Since it began, Project Arachnid has issued 4 million notices for removal of child sex abuse images. We'll learn more about Project Arachnid and the difficult job involved in finding and getting all of these images taken down. It's time once again for the Winnipeg Folk Festival, and we learn that our dear friend and colleague, Tristan Field-Jones, had a great nickname in high school, and it ended up being the subject of a contest that I screwed up. I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Loren McNabb, and a vacation in Greg Mackling. We are Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, and this is the Thursday, July 11th podcast for The Start. We were saying earlier, we have conversations about single-use plastics. You know, should we stop taking plastic bags from the grocery store? Should we drive less? Should we be thinking about our carbon footprint when it comes to just gasoline? And the question this morning is, what do we do? Do we ever pause and think about the environment when booking a flight? So aviation is responsible for 2% of greenhouse gases now, but that's expected to triple over the next few decades. But are we ready to keep our feet on the ground? That's the question Global's Redmond Shannon has been asking this week. Flying was once glamorous and exclusive, but now it is for almost everyone. In 2018, more than 4 billion air tickets were sold worldwide. Air travel has increased 50% in just six years. But what most of us know, few of us want to say that traveling by air is bad, very bad for climate change. Taking a train from Montreal to Toronto emits about 15 kilos of greenhouse gases per passenger. Driving a gasoline car emits about 80 kilos, unless you're sharing when it becomes much more efficient. But a flight between the cities leaves a 98 kilo footprint per flyer. Teenage climate activist Greta Thunberg refuses to fly. So too does Anna Hughes. Her last flight was 10 years ago. I haven't been on a plane for that long um, and I haven't felt that I needed to at all. I I feel like it hasn't been detrimental to my life or anything like that. Hughes is part of Flight Free 2020, an international campaign encouraging people to spend next year on the ground. It's an achievable aim for just a year but it's also it's really hard like if you're in the habit of flying a lot it is really hard to take a year off Um, but we kind of want that as like a little challenge the idea is to start the conversation and to spark changes in behavior they may sort of start recycling plastics um, and and sort of try and turn down the thermostats on in their homes but actually all those savings could be wiped out in one go by by taking even one short haul flight Aviation environment campaigner Tim Johnson says climate change targets are starting to focus minds. The UK recently committed to be carbon neutral by 2050. I've worked in this industry for for 20 years and I've never seen the level of sort of public scrutiny and interest in how the industry is going to respond to its climate impacts. And this is actually making airlines think, you know, is the public attention going to be switched to aviation very shortly? Maybe it will, but as long as low-cost carriers in many parts of the world are offering $30 flights, it seems unlikely anytime soon. Redmond Shannon, Global News, London. 
those $30. Come on. <laughs> Sorry, this microphone button sticks. Well, I pushed it like four I times. Sh- I know I should be pushing it now, but I just, I feel like, you know, maybe on year two, I'll like move into the button pushing zone, but not yet. <laughs> so 2020, 2020, okay. people should stop flying and I will start using the buttons in here. That will be how we do that. But I think this is a fascinating conversation because there was a couple takeaways in that story that I hadn't thought of before. So one was the, the line from one of the advocates saying like, you know, you could be redu- turning your thermostat stat down, turning your thermostat down every day, you know, while you leave your home or your air conditioning off and you could be stop using single use plastics and all that combined might be offset by one short haul flight. So I do at least one of those a year. I don't know about you. I would be m- about my average. We're going to Edmonton ourselves this year. Yep. So to know that all those things you do in your home is wiped out by just that one flight is is for sure food for thought. Now, we don't have that low air cost travel like they do in Europe. Like Redmond there mentioned, you know, people are going to keep flying if you can get a $30 flight. And that's true. I've, I remember traveling from south of France to Rome for, I think, 38 bucks or something like that. Like, it can be super cheap, and it's hard to say no to that. Yep. So the more expensive things get, I guess, the more I might pause. But again, it would be the cost that's causing me to think, okay, maybe I won't fly, as opposed to the environment. Well, and also the time you, you talked about. Like, if you don't take... Air, you don't use air travel, then mm-hmm. you need to factor in however long it takes you to get somewhere. So let's say you are going to Europe. I would love to travel to Europe at some point in my life. It's on the bucket list. But if I take a plane, it takes like eight hours, mm-hmm. maybe, to cross the Atlantic. If I take an ocean liner, it takes seven days. An airline, like a jumbo jet, goes between 460 to 575 miles per hour, or 740 to 930 kilometers, whereas the modern cruise ship is roughly the maximum speed of 34 and a half miles. So, like, I would need to take a month off Mm -hmm. if I wanted to take a cruise to Europe, stay there for a couple of weeks, and then a week to travel back. I don't have that kind of time. I also don't know. I mean, that's a good question in terms of. What's the carbon footprint of a steam, like a cruise ship? I don't know what that would be. Is it less, more? I'm assuming it's less than a plane, but I don't know that. And so all these questions are, you're not getting on a ship. Yeah. I like, Don't get me wrong. I like taking I a cruise. I would not do that. But uh, I would, the cruise would be my vacation, whereas I would be on the cruise, like say to, you fly. But again, like when I was on a cruise, I flew to Miami, took a cruise down to the Caribbean. We made a few stops. We stopped in uh, Jamaica, the Cayman Islands, the Bahamas, and Mexico, and then back to Miami and then flew home. Uh, so without, I'm not going to, I mean, I guess I could have driven down to Miami, <laughs> but that would take me an extra couple of days. Cause I am not, uh, you know, these people who get in the car and they just nonstop 30 hours. Yes, you don't want to do that. I can't, I can't do more than four hours. You want to take my kids. You're going to go 40, you're going to get there in 22 hours. I guarantee. Really? Oh, it, like it's super fun to travel with your kids, but that's another thing. Like, so we have done, we're doing an Edmonton trip this year. Yep. We've also done the drive there as well to visit family and that's it's fun like when you look back on it it's a great memory but sometimes in that moment you're like please why like if you ask me one more time if we're there or why do you have to go to the bathroom 400 times <laughs> in like an 800 kilometer journey like it's some of the air travel is more convenient for a lot of reasons yeah and i can't imagine stopping it and so uh, at 7:45, we're going to talk about the things that some airlines are doing but also would you pay like a little carbon tax or an extra price, Brett, so that you'd feel better. For example, if you get on a plane, someone's going to go plant a tree 
somewhere if you pay 30 bucks because that will that will help, you know, uh, reduce the footprint that they, so, so to speak. I wouldn't want to pay that. make you feel better? No, it wouldn't because you, you're already taxed at the max by getting on a plane because it used to be you pay for your, your ticket and then you maybe pay for one bag and that was it. But now you got to pay for everything. You got to mm-hmm. pay for your seat selection. You got to pay for the fuel surcharge tax. You got to pay for... Uh, all of you, basically, they they just nickel and dime you for everything, and then you want to throw on a carbon tax on top of that. So no, it just uh, it. But hearing this story does make me think. Well, what else can I do in my life? Like, how many single use plastics can I stop using? I don't do water. The only time I use plastic water bottles is if like I'll I'll buy a dozen uh, every couple of months over the summer and bring them to the golf course. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, I have like an aluminum water bottle that I refill all the time. And as far as the grocery bags, I I do get the plastic bags, but because I use them as garbage bags for when I'm cleaning up the cat litter. So if you if, you, if you've got a suggestion for a better bag to use for the cat litter, please by all means give me the suggestion at two zero four seven eight zero sixty eight sixty eight. Maybe there's a better bag or a more biodegradable bag. I don't know. I've got a permanent solution. Don't get a, don't have a cat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Trust me, my allergies would love to see those cats. Yeah. Get rid of that cat. Go away. Sorry, cat lovers, but. I'm allergic. I have to take so many <laughs> prescription medications to deal with it. McGarry and McNabb, Mackling back next week in studio with us, with us. We have Jeff Braun, Kelly Moore, and Jeff Forte joins us in studio. I know, this is he's weird. He's here, he's not behind the glass. No, it's, this is so strange. <laughs> because Will Reimer is training in Master Control today, so Forte gets to join us in studio. So the story here at globalnews.ca, the headline is Priest en route to funeral clocked by OPP, driving 150 kilometers an hour on Highway 400. So this priest on the way to, the, to a funeral gets nailed for doing 50 over the limit. Sergeant Kerry Smith told Global News the driver was caught on the highway in the Toronto area Wednesday afternoon, and he referenced the incident on Twitter, asking what if police should have issued a ticket and or penalties. And he so the tweet the reads, priest did this. No, the, the the officer. Oh, sorry. Puts on Twitter. I he says the priest was like, "I'm begging forgiveness here <laughs> on my Twitter account." So he puts this tweet out and he says, "So an officer stopped a priest." On his way to a funeral today, not a joke, going 50 kilometers an hour over the limit. Should he get a ticket? Hashtag seven-day license suspension. Hashtag seven-day vehicle impound. And 75% voted for yes, justice. Whereas 25% said no, mercy. So we're just curious. So 75% agreed the priest should have gotten. 50 over the limit is very dangerous. That's insane. He should Totally get his license revoked or whatever. It doesn't say why this priest was speeding so bad, like why this priest was clearly late for this funeral. But that got us to thinking, is there an acceptable excuse for speeding? And we had the conversation earlier about, well, what if you're driving someone to the hospital who is about to have a baby? What do you do? Kelly's nodding his head. Has yeah. it, you've got some kids? Well, yeah, they've they've never been born in a car, but <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but yeah, I, I would say that's about as that was the first thing I thought of, and and when you uh, shared the story with us, uh, Hitman, I thought they can't start the funeral without the priest, so you know, I mean, what's the hurry? Yeah, I you guess know? so. Yeah, the, the priest is late. Just. Hold on. Yeah. What about you, Forte? Well, actually, um, there's one time I was going down Chief Pagwis, so, you know, I was going a little fast, of course, and um, got pulled over. Of course. In the cobalt? In the cobalt, <laughs> yeah. That cobalt, I, you know, I like to like to rev the engine on that thing. And uh, anyway, so I'm going, and of course, I see the, the lights behind me, and I go, oh, no. Anyway, so I get pulled over, and uh, 
the cop comes up to my my car and goes, uh, no, you're going a little faster. And I was like, I know, I'm an idiot. <laughs> I'm an idiot. <laughs> and he goes, you know what, just slow it down and Really? Get on your way. Yep, jumped in his car and left. Uh, he liked your honesty, probably. Yeah. Well, probably felt sorry for your driving a four-cylinder <laughs> cobalt. <laughs> well, yes. That, that, too, that too. How fast were you going? I was going like 15 over the limit. So. Oh, so you were just over then, really. That's yeah. not. The threshold yeah. is like, what, 11, I think is the... the what, was it, 8? Oh, is it eight? Oh At, is there an actual threshold, or is it just what we all assume? That a, I thought it was 10%. See, thought, this is. A, I like, always heard it was well, eleven. I it was I'm not, not going to name names, but a, an individual who would be in a position to know that very well uh, was the person who shared that information with me. Oh, Ooh. so if you're doing like 56 in a 50, that's enough to potentially breach the 10%. Yeah, when I was when I was coaching ball, I always set the the. Um, Oh, what the hell? Odometer cruise Yeah, things? the cruise control, yeah, to 10%. So if it was 100 kilometers an hour, I felt very safe at 110. Hmm. Okay. Someone yeah. should test this out on a red light camera, see what happens. Oh, no, that doesn't matter. <laughs> that I know. Is? I, oh, 6 kilometers, 10 kilometers, 12 kilometers. I guess 10%. You're right. So if I was 5 kilometers over on a photo radar... I don't know. I'd, it's never been five kilometers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. McNabb's always been 50. But, I'm but late for a newscast! But it has been like six kilometers over, and I have received a ticket. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Okay. And what did you get for six kilometers over the speed limit? Um, I think it was, what's well, 180, something like that. Wow. I'm, trying to, I'm trying to think about it now. Good Lord. This is several years ago, but I do know, remember, I remember getting a ticket and thinking, that's not so bad. But if the threshold maybe is, well, yeah. you know, five, they, they say like five kilometers over, 10 kilometers over yeah, really well, impacts yeah, that depending was, on the, the zone you're in. That right? was for radar. Right. Okay. That, yeah. that we weren't talking about uh, cameras there. We sure. were talking about highway radar. What yeah. about you, Bron? Um, I've only ever once got a speeding ticket and it was at a, it was a construction zone thing. It was where the pylons ended and all the construction was done. Road was wide open. There wasn't one piece of equipment or one person working. So I went back up to the regular speed limit, but it was a quarter mile down the road where it said construction ended. Was that on Bishop Grandin? Yes. Oh, that, that was a cash cow. Yeah. And there was just a guy there just snapping pictures of everybody. Oh. That's that was brutal. I got one on Bishop too. Yeah, yeah that <laughs> construction zone. Yeah, they should be ashamed of themselves for for that one. I know so many people got nailed in that spot. <laughs> yeah. I know we were just coming home from Lockport on Sunday, and there's that construction on the uh, north perimeter. You know, when you just come through Lodge, there the same thing. Construction zone. Nobody's working on a Sunday. Yeah. Well, I, know. To say, I drove through one in St. Norbert on the way in, and it's 4 a.m. and nobody's working. I I thought that this morning. Am I really supposed to slow down? At this hour? Yeah. You have lots of money, McNabb, no, I don't. sure. <laughs> Please. Right now, we want to talk more about carbon monoxide. By the way, we're getting a lot of feedback on the aviation thing, aviation emissions. Should we fly less because of emissions? And we're going to revisit that story as well at 745. We can't stop flying. So what are companies doing and what can consumers do to help? But we got a text message yesterday morning at 730. 
at 204-780-6868 on the Super 8 carbon monoxide leak, which sent 46 people to hospital. Loren, you want to read the text? Yeah, here's how it goes. This person writes, carbon monoxide poisoning, December 15th, 2016. I was in a job site trailer that had a generator supplying electrical power and heat because it was minus 30. Long story short, I was found unconscious on the floor of the trailer. We found out later I had been out for over two hours. I was taken to Victoria Hospital by ambulance. Typically, you don't survive if your poisoning level is over 20. Mine was measured at 36.2, almost twice the lethal amount. He goes on to write, My family was called to the hospital. Basically, they were told, come now while he is alive. We don't expect him to make it. It was an absolute miracle that I survived. That man's name is Doug DeJong, and yesterday he was on Hal Anderson Afternoons to share more of his story. At the back of the trailer is where the generator was, and then there was a center, like a little lunchroom, and then my office was at the front. For a few days, I had the generator running just during the day, but it would take like three, four hours for there to get to be proper heat in the trailer. So I thought, well, I'll I'll, uh, leave the generator running overnight, and at least it's warm when I come in in the morning. And like I would open like the back doors of the trailer so that the uh, carbon monoxide would get out, right? right. And I guess uh, even those two walls in the trailer, like the the hole I had like a, an extension cord running through, the hole was maybe two inches in diameter. That's all it took for this carbon monoxide to get through. Wow. And because uh, I didn't even, you know, I didn't even realize that potential for the hazard to be there, right? Uh, on the day in question, I was working away, and, and the reason I know that I was out for over two hours, on my phone we saw after, I missed my first phone call just before 9 o'clock, so we knew uh, I was out by by unconscious by 9 o'clock. A concrete salesman happened to come by our, our job site and uh, came in the trailer, saw me on the ground unconscious, called 911, and that was just before 11. So uh, it was two hours that I was... Uh, Unconscious. Now, Doug says before that concrete salesman showed up and called 911, he did briefly regain consciousness a handful of times. Like I had no idea it was happening, right? Like I was on the ground in the trailer and uh, I knew something was wrong. Like I reached for my phone, I tried to dial 911 and I just, like I couldn't have the coordination and stay conscious long enough to even phone 911. Mm. One of the times that I gained consciousness again, just for a few seconds, like I realized I was dying and I, I remember specifically having this thought like, wow, like my wife is going to be a, a pretty young widow. I had two grandkids, one that was uh, about a year and a half. And I remember consciously thinking, wow, my, my son and daughter-in-law are going to have to say to my grandson, grandpa won't be coming around anymore. Now, as Doug mentioned in his text, his family was called to the hospital and told to get down there because he was not expected to live. They have a, a way of measuring the carbon monoxide poisoning you have. And, and at the hospital, like after I recovered, uh, they told me, in, like whatever this number is, like anything 20 and over, you know, the guy's probably not going to regain consciousness. The first measurement that they had on me, I was 36.2, so almost twice like what is generally considered a lethal uh, poisoning. Um, and yeah, they called, like my uh, my wife came, uh, my son, my daughter, and my sister, they all came thinking uh, yeah. they, I'd be sort of there breathing, but 
you know, I, I don't throw around the word miracle too often, but it's a miracle I survived because, you know, based on how long I was out and the degree of, uh, of carbon monoxide poisoning that I had, there's no way I should have survived. Yeah. That is Doug DeJean in conversation with Hal Anderson yesterday. And here's the kicker. Hal recorded this conversation yesterday morning. They did the interview. Hal turned off the microphones. And then Doug says, well, actually, that was the second time I almost died because of carbon monoxide. So Hal says, hang on turns the microphones back on, and he got that story. So he shared the first story at 1.30 in the afternoon, if you want to hear the whole thing. And you can hear the second story, again, in the audio vault at cjob.com, starting just after the 2.30 news, Wednesday afternoon. Doug adds the company he was working for at the time immediately installed the carbon monoxide detector. Doug's got three in his home. Again, cjob.com, the audio vault for more. And you can subscribe to Hal Anderson's podcast there as well. Can you dig it, dig it, sucker? Sucker. This is the theme music for one Booker T from WWE, yes. one of my favorite wrestlers. And I was thrilled yesterday when I Loren shares this piece of audio from the news on Tuesday afternoon with Tristan Field Jones and Will Reimer filling in for Julie Buckingham that day, TFJ filling in for Richard Cluche. And when they were giving away a prize, there was this hilarious, spontaneous thing that happened where the person who called in turns out knew Tristan. So here's how it went down. We wanted to hear, wanted you to hear this. All right, let's see. We got a couple other callers here. Uh, Let's try. Hello, what's your name? June from high school. I'm sorry? June. Okay. Uh, June Riddell, you went to high school with me. Really? How was Tristan as a classmate? No, no, Mike, that's not, the point, of the, that's not the point the contest. of the contest. Stop the contest and let's continue talking. <laughs> okay. He was so nice. Well, are you an Ozzy Osbourne fan? Um, kind of. Are you well, a TFJ fan? Okay, no, 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 no. no. See, Sky, you're worried about us being over time and you're not helping let's the problem. Let's the time for this. This okay. is the slowest time of the year in sports. Christian can hit pause. Oh, my. No, 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 no. Mike, see. Let's give him another listen. Let's give him another okay, listen. Let's, let's play a little while since again. we heard the clip. Yeah. Here's the clip. Here we go. Alrighty, can you figure out the rest of the of the lyrics there? Crazy, it's not too late to learn how to love and forget how to hate. You are so close. Can you figure out? There's one word at the very beginning there that's almost, almost. Hmm. Oh. We need the next lines. Yeah, she's she's got the next lines, but there's she's just one, one word at the very beginning. That looks that's... like a win to me. You want to call it a win? Come on, come on. <laughs> high school <laughs> friend. <sighs> what? Oh, there we go. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Tristan. All right. Before you go, before before uh-huh. we let you go, considering... We're running low on time here, Mike. Uh, Tristan compromised his contesting integrity for this. To make up for it, mm. can you mm-hmm. tell us a fun fact about high school Tristan? Oh, good. Um, Tristan a juicy was always one. very smart, did great in his classes, mm-hmm. and booked it around between classes. And so one of our friends, John, called him Booker T., that's right. I almost forgot oh. about that. Yes! <laughs> yeah! Okay. Well, that was pretty <laughs> mild. That sounds pretty good. Oh, uh, well, I thank you very much. Oh, that's well, great to hear. All right, take care. 
Okay, bye bye. <laughs> so uncomfortable. Oh, what a great nickname. I don't know why he hates that so much. Booker T. Booker T. He's the five time, five time, five time, five time, five time WCW champion. <laughs> Tristan Field Jones filling in on the news. Oh, did I have a field day with that yesterday? Speaking of Field Jones. Oh. Small town salute brought to you by South Beach Casino and Resort. It's true. Get real cash back on your play. Find out more at southbeachcasino.ca. And when we were searching for a small town salute idea, we learned that Frog Follies is on this weekend in St. Pierre Jolie. Say it, Loren. St. Pierre Jolie. There it is. I don't think that's quite right. Well, I thought that was pretty good. Let's ask her. Well, we can ask Faith DeHarnay, president of the St. Pierre Jolie Frog Follies Committee. Did Loren McNabb, Faith, say it okay? Pretty okay. <laughs> there was a yeah. pause. Faith, how do you, say your town for us? Well, I'm not French, but I I've learned Saint Pierre Jolie. Jolie. There you go. See, she yeah. had the nice little roll at the end. So, very good, Faith. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. And I gotta ask, start by asking you, why is it called uh, Fifty Years of Frog Follies? By the way, congratulations. Yeah. But why is it called Frog Follies? Well, in 1970, the People in the town knew the queen was coming, so they were brainstorming ideas, and some guy said, hey, the English people call us frogs, let's do something with frogs. <laughs> and hence, frog follies. <laughs> That's a great, we, we were saying this morning, you know, sometimes names get given for all sorts of reasons. Is that ever caused any controversy in later years, or is it just a tongue-in-cheek thing people have fun with? I think it's just, thing, uh, we have fun with it. Yeah, and you've got a really cute logo, the, the frog with a top hat, kind of reminiscent of Looney Tunes' Michigan J. Frog, I believe was his name. And uh, for those who don't know, St. Pierre Jolie, it's not that far from Winnipeg, but if you've never been, how does one get to St. Pierre Jolie? Well, basically, you take Lodge, go south uh, on the 59 for about 25 minutes, and you'll be driving right through our town. If you get to St. Malo Beach, you've gone 10 minutes too far. But then you get the beach, so it's, you know, then you can circle back (laughs) and have a nice trip, right? Yeah, enjoy the beach, come back for the Frog Follies, and you're all good. Do you live in St. Pierre-Jolie? Yes, I do. What's the area like, or what do you like about the area? Well, it's like a bustling, bilingual town, around 1,300 people, surrounded by agricultural land. And, uh, yeah, I like the bilingual aspect, small town, but still bustling with activities and businesses. I live just south of Winnipeg, and so we've been there often in our family. In fact, for a couple of years, we had a library subscription there because it was mm-hmm. one of my favorite little cutest little libraries in town. So it was really nice for the kids. Uh, the, the town itself has actually grown quite a bit. I think a lot of people do commute into Winnipeg from there. Is that right? That is very correct. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm just looking at the website, frogfollies.com, and I see that frogs, there's actually one of the tabs on your top menu is frogs, the frogs of St. Pierre Jolie, the most important part of the festival. But what is this frog jumping at the Frog Follies? Tell us about this event. Well, we call them our athletes, actually, because they're the ones doing the work of jumping. But, yeah, you put them... Uh, you uh, pay $5 to jump a frog, and you get your frog, and you put him on the little bullseye, and you, you encourage him to jump, and after three jumps, they measure how far 
the frog has jumped from the bullseye. Like an actual frog. An actual frog. For some reason, I was picturing you making humans do frog-like jumps and somehow <laughs> trying to make a race out of it. I like this. This is fun. So no. you, you get the full list of events at uh, frogfollies.com. There's a jam-packed schedule starting tonight at 6 o'clock, including a frog hunt at Maplewood Golf Course. Maplewood, by the way, if you're a golfer, is a fun little course. Mm. Wanted to ask you, by the way, Faith, you guys uh, were one of the communities that got the most rain earlier this week. Do you, uh, how is it, Has it left a mess as you head into the weekend? Uh, well, it made everything uh, nice and wet, but other than, I mean, we're fairly high. We don't have any puddles a- around, but we got a good four inches. That's a lot of rain. Yeah. But before we let you go, there's a little cafe that I've been to there that makes a great breakfast. If anyone's coming to St. Pierre-Jolie, can you recommend a place to eat that's one of your favorite places? Oh, well, I think you must be talking about the Gem Bistro yes. is a, a new one that started up, but you want gelato, go to Big Way. If you, you know, Slurpees, go to the Shell or the Esso. Oh, lots of places in town to grab something good to eat. All right, Faith DeHarnay, president of the St. Pierre Jolie Frog Follies Committee, joining us live this morning on CJOB for the Small Town Salute. Thank you very much for this, Faith. Much appreciated. All right. Well, thanks. We're hopping around, getting ready. <laughs> <laughs> I love her. Yeah, Frog Fall, they've got a big slow pitch tournament that's a part of this event. Yeah, I know people, like I went to French Immersion, so I grew up uh, with people who either had, tie, like, had ties to the French community, and this is uh, sort of an annual tradition uh, for many. So, yeah, the full event list at frogfollies.com. Do we still have her on the line, or is she gone? She's still there. I had one more quick question, if you're still you. there. Yes. But the frog race before they that happens you have to catch all the frogs like where do the frogs come from from the pond we yeah we get uh permission to to catch them and then afterwards we release them right back where we got them from i was just noticing on your good care of them i was just noticing on your website that you actually put out a call for people to come ahead of time to join them with their rubber boots and your best frog Mm -hmm. catching skills so i should send the kids down just for that oh it's lots of fun Okay, thank you very much for this, Faith. So much fun to be had this weekend in St. Pierre Jolie for Frog Follies, the 50th annual Frog Follies. Before we talk more about air travel, we have more bomber tickets to give away. Big game tomorrow, Toronto in town. Pre-game at 5.30, kickoff at 7.30. Make sure you subscribe to the Blue Bomber podcast with Doug Brown and Greg Mackling. And to get the tickets today, you need to tell us, if hopefully you were listening either Tuesday afternoon or about a half hour ago here on the start. We learned from one of Tristan Field-Jones, who is our colleague and friend who's filling in for Richard Cloutier on the news this week from 4 until 7 weekdays. We learned from one of his high school friends uh that they his nickname in high school was what 204-780-6868 is the number to call we played the theme music for a particular wrestler who happened to share that nickname <laughs> i don't know if that was the inspiration for the nickname but that's what no, i'm going with as a wrestling that's fan that's what you have to go with yeah isn't yep. it a booker t in the what's the name of the band oh i just did it. i did it to myself <laughs> Okay. Brett! I did it to myself. Did somebody already call with the answer? Well, if they got the answer, that's fine. Oh, my gosh. And if not, then just go with caller number four. (laughs) We just Uh, talked about this. I did. I did it to myself. I just ruined it for myself. So I guess, hang on, I need to resting Brett face myself. Well, that's that's the answer, Brett. So. 
idiot. I, sh- I guess I should just go home now. Should as a punishment. Please don't. You know I don't know how to do anything at this table. <laughs> okay, so did the first caller know the answer, Forte? Can you tell? Did they know the an- did the first caller know the answer? He, yeah, and he said he knew the answer without uh, without having to hear without, you say it. Okay, okay good. <laughs> okay. The answer was Booker T. That's Tristan's <laughs> name because he used to book it from class to class in high school, according to Dune, who called in uh, the other day with an answer. <laughs> Love it. Okay, well, now that I'm uh, three sheets of beet red, <laughs> let's uh, switch to airline emissions. What's going on in the air, Lorette? Well, every year, planes pump more and more greenhouse gases into the air, yet more and more people are hopping on planes. I think the last number I read that air travel in the last 10 years alone has jumped 50% in terms of the number of passengers and planes that are in the air. So the question we're asking this morning is, what can we do about this? What are airlines doing to combat their carbon footprint, and honestly, does anyone even care? First, some food for thought from the Aviation Environment Federation. It's a huge issue. It's maybe a 2% of carbon dioxide emissions. It's the figure the industry likes to quote and gives you the impression that this is an issue that's perhaps quite small and quite manageable. But actually, it's the direction of travel that the aviation industry is going in. It's typically growing at 5 to 6% per annum globally in terms of its passenger numbers. It can't get anywhere close to that in terms of the emission reductions and efficiency improvements it's making. So its carbon footprint is growing year on year. Only this year we saw it reach the one gigaton mark. Hearing those numbers might cause some to hit pause, although I doubt many. We were telling you in the last hour about a group called Flight Free, which is a movement encouraging people to take a year off from air travel in 2020. But for many of us, that's not really a practical option. We might just need to travel through work. I know a lot of people who do at least two or three work trips a year, some 10, 20, 30. Uh, I've got family actually all over the world. We try to visit some of those when we can or can afford to. So that's not an option for us. And also, I think a lot of us just don't want to stop flying, Brett. Yeah. Yeah. So now what? First, advocates say some flights are better than others, with some airlines working to build and buy more fuel-efficient planes. Paul Everett is the chief executive of the UK Aerospace Trade Association. Incremental improvement in our existing technologies, uh, primarily making aircraft lighter, making them uh, more aerodynamic, and and renewing and improving the conventional propulsion systems. Alongside that, we see the role for biofuels, although you know, we, we don't want to overstate how important they are, simply because biofuels have to be themselves sustainably produced, and that's a, that's a big challenge. But nonetheless, it can make a significant uh, difference on individual flights. Um, alongside that, we're looking at uh, air traffic management to make uh, flying more fuel efficient. There are also websites that will then rank those planes. So if you're really curious, there's some airlines that you can go on a website uh, and they will tell you, okay, well, that airline actually might reduce your footprint by X percentage if you choose that flight over another one. And then there's also carbon offsetting. Julie Zhu, Julia Zhu, rather, is with Atmosphere, which is a German carbon offset group, and she explains the process. So uh, offsetting is a fairly simple concept. It means uh, enabling carbon reductions elsewhere to make up for your own emissions. Um, this is usually done through projects that enable energy efficiency or renewable energy uh, in the global south. Um, what that means for uh, individuals is, for instance, if you um, take a flight which is um, which emits carbon and is bad for the climate, you can um, offset uh, those uh, emissions and uh, mitigate uh, the climate impact of your trip. Or would it just make sense, we talked about this earlier, Brett, 
take your trip, choose the train, the bus, or the car instead. Now, without Greyhound, there's not a lot of Western options in the sense of going all the way from Winnipeg to the West Coast. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are people who have ranked how that works. And so here how here's how it would look if you were to choose the average trip. The best carbon footprint would be diesel bus, followed by train, then car, then aircraft. But those are based on the idea that there would be two or three people in the car and then the plane would be full. So depending on the flight, if the plane is full... And you divide that by all the people on the plane, there's actually less of an impact on the environment technically per person than if you had just one person driving in the car. So you going to Edmonton by yourself versus you driving to Edmonton, if your plane is full, it might might not make a difference. Okay, yeah. Well, and, and like the I, the trip that I took recently, there were three flights involved. There was a direct flight to Las Vegas, and then we took a connecting flight on the way back. And all three flights were completely full. And uh, Greg's referenced as well, like it's been a long time since he's been on a plane that was not full or at least near capacity. Um, But in terms of like we were talking about, okay, if I want to go to Europe, what's my alternative? Do I take a cruise ship? Well, we had someone text us at 204-780-6868 saying that might not be the way to go because they say ships owned by Carnival, for example, emit 10 times more pollution than all of the cars in Europe. 47 ships versus 300 million cars. And just based on the initial stuff that I'm looking at here, it looks like the cruise ship is probably the worst way to go. In terms of the environment, they say flying is three times greener than cruising. Hmm. So, Like if I took, you, you did your trip, it did three islands, right? Yeah. I, and so if I took a flight to Florida, then it got on that boat versus a flight to Florida, then a flight to Caymans, then Bermuda, then whatever the next place was, that would be wor- that would be better than the boat? Based on this initial run that I'm looking at here, and I'd have, there's lots mm-hmm. of numbers and whatnot, but it's, it's, it's saying that the average calculation in terms of the carbon footprint is higher when it comes to taking a cruise ship. So that's not the, the, the better option either. So I guess maybe the, the only real way, to, way around it is to look at this offsetting. If you really care about the environment, you can take your flight, but then you can look into making some sort of a contribution to this carbon offset. Well, it's just too many variables. Like even the, there's been the guys all over, women all over the world, experts with 10 different gr- degrees that have tried to do the best possible comparison. And it, it depends on how many people are in there, what kind of fuel is being used, what kind of vehicle you're in. And then what if there's an electric? What if there's battery? But honestly, until this morning, it's not something I've given a ton of thought when it comes to getting on the plane. Before we tell you a story from Illinois and then a story that McNabb had you from yesterday while she was driving, we first need to learn who won those bomber tickets uh, just as I ruined the whole giveaway. Yeah, big congratulations to Jerry Vandell. Jerry Vandell, congratulations. Jerry knew that Tristan Field Jones's high school nickname, at least by some, was Booker T because he would book it around between classes. Quickly, Tristan, I think, is is he organized? Is that the right way to put it? He just wants to get away from the fray of full hallways, I think, and Probably. rush from class to class. So Booker T. Yeah, and Jerry knew the answer before I just spilled it on the air and saying, what was the name of that band? Was it Booker T and the McGees? I think. <laughs> So, yeah, I said the answer, and, uh, yeah, I can't give Greg a hard time anymore for that one time that he spilled the beans on a prize. I'm, as we speak, in the process of trying to isolate that audio, send it to Greg so that he knows. Oh, I can do that for you. You're now in the exclusive club. I wasn't really going to do it. I was going to ask you to do it. (laughs) Okay. But in the process of, like, I'm in the process of telling you to do that for me. Okay, I will do that for (laughs) sure. I will happily fall on the sword. (laughs) 
to let Greg off of the hook. Before we talk about what happened in Illinois, something caught your eye yesterday. Well, it's a tweet that was being shared by the Canadian Centre for Child Protection, and this is how it goes. Quote, since hashtag Project Arachnid started, it has issued almost 4 million notices for the removal of child sex abuse images. 4 million notices. This is a social epidemic. And so that prompted uh, us to reach out to the Centre for Child Protection. They've been working for years to try to pull some of these graphic and terrible images down from websites all over the world. 4 million notices is insane. And they've actually put out a call to government and industry leaders this morning to do more about this. So we'll talk about that at 8.45. And actually after 8.30, we're going to speak with a spokesperson of a Winnipeg organization that says the increased use of heritage conservation districts is a smokescreen and it's getting in the way of smart development in this city. But right now, I want to tell you, well, here's the headline. Illinois mom arrested after driving car with kids on roof in an inflatable pool. You can read this at globalnews.ca. We've linked the story to our 680 CJOB Instagram story. We'll just give you the nuts and bolts of this because we want to get to Loren's story here. But uh, the story reads, parents can be chastised for letting their kids ride in vehicles without seatbelts. And they can also be reprimanded for letting their children near pools without supervision. But in Illinois on Tuesday, a mother allegedly took parental negligence to another level. And there's a picture of this automobile, looks like an Audi crossover kind of SUV with an inflatable pool on the roof. And according to police there in Dixon, Illinois, 49-year-old Jennifer Yanis Yeager was arrested after she had her two daughters ride on the top of her car in order to hold down an inflatable pool. She was charged with two counts of endangering the health or life of a child and two counts of reckless conduct. I don't that even, how insane. does this even happen? At first, when I thought I saw this, I thought this was a mom who put the pool on the car with water mm-hmm. and drove the kids around like a traveling pool. Yeah, but she's which is which would just be insane. But this is her idea was that she couldn't tie the pool down. Yeah, and it's going to blow away. So why don't we put our kids in it to hold it down? Or how's how about this? Inflate the pool when you arrive at your destination. Like that, it, it wouldn't take long to do that. Even, I mean, I guess it would, if you had, if you had to do it manually, that would take a while. But come on, get just get a bike pump. But you saw something. Was it yesterday? Yeah, I was driving home yesterday, and your story about this woman it, it made me laugh because I was thinking, how far do what what lengths do we have to go to make people see when their behaviors are just gone too far? And so, first of all, I'm going to fully fall on the sword and say I'm, it's not like I haven't picked up my phone while I'm driving. I try really, really hard to put it away or keep it in my purse. I've put it in the trunk at times, you know, just so it's not around. And I, for the most part, like to think I'm good at not using my phone while driving, but that doesn't mean it doesn't happen. I'm driving home yesterday and there's this woman in front of me swerving just back and forth, not just a little bit, but into the lane, out, out of the lane, into the lane, out. And my first thought was that maybe they were impaired. But then I was like, I will bet you this person is on their phone. Mm -hmm. So I pull up next to them at the next light. Sure enough, this woman's not even looking up. She's two-handing, texting, like with her head down in the lap as if to hide it. But she's clearly using her phone and texting. Okay. Doesn't look over. I follow her to the next light. Same thing. So this goes on for a couple kilometers to the point where I thought to myself, I should honk the horn and just say, hey. But then I didn't want to be that judgy person that's like causing the confrontation because I have been there before. But 
it was going on so long and so bad and in and out of traffic, almost rear-ended someone, almost went through a light, not seeing what they're doing. And I thought, like, someone needs to say something. And then my other thought was, if I don't say something, and I learned later that there was this car, car accident, and it was caused by this colored car, by this, you know, the name that I knew, the recognized the brand, am I going to feel horrible that I didn't stop and say something? I wouldn't let someone get drunk and then get in the car. Mm-hmm. So what's stopping us from stopping the, everyone else from doing this terrible, terrible thing? And so my question started to make me wonder, would that work better for her and for even me or for anyone else if you're publicly shamed for something? Like if I pulled over and just had a serious conversation and said, I followed you for this length of time, you almost did these three different things and hurt somebody, would that have a bigger impact on people's driving behaviors, public shame, or at least the call out over the fine or a ticket or worse? I, I think it it would for some, and for others, it would just incite rage. And then you would be presented with a situation where maybe your things are about to get violent. Uh, because people's, I think a lot of, for a lot of people, their gut reaction would be to say, no, you're wrong, just to just be full on denial. Or as if you don't ever touch your phone once in a while, right? I, yeah. I get that. People but, get defensive. But I really started to think about you hear police officers have been saying for years now that texting and driving is no different than impaired driving because of the distraction, because of the weaving you see that it mimics that type of behavior in terms of what can happen from it. And again, I wouldn't let somebody get in a car drunk. So why would I watch somebody text and drive and not just be like, hey, like, I see you, cut it out. Well, the threat of public shaming in terms of like, let's say we're to get pulled over for whether it's distracted driving or impaired driving and it and that became uh, some kind of public knowledge just in terms of like let's say I was reprimanded at work or or uh, if somebody caught wind of it like some of my friends caught wind of it that would be horrifying so mm-hmm. that that I think I think that would work for a lot of people I wouldn't I'd be so mortified if somebody tapped on my window and said hey man stop being an idiot you're putting lives at risk I would hope that in that moment, I'd be able to say, yeah, you're right, and, and put my phone down. And think twice, maybe, but... Yeah, and I just, the, 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 the energy that it takes to drive and text nowadays on a smartphone, like I used to be able with the flip phone, the T9, where you had tactile buttons, I could do that in my with my eyes closed, and I would do that. I'm not saying I should have, no, but I, I know, would I do know. it. But it's, it's near impossible with a smartphone. So the <clears throat> idea that I would be driving for two kilometers while texting whatever dissertation this woman was doing. And and right now you lose your license instantly if you're texting and driving, instantly. And so that, for many people, has been enough to be like, I don't want to get caught doing that, right? That's a huge penalty to take. And instead, this is wasn't even like you're at a light in your texting. It was nonstop. I just, I'm, I'm trying to figure out for ourselves, for myself, what is the right, right course of action here? It's a pretty important conversation, and this is just out from the Canadian Centre for Child Protection this morning, saying every 12 hours, it detects 10,824 new images of child sexual abuse online through Project Arachnid. Now, that project is essentially a web platform designed to detect child sex abuse images on the internet. And since it launched a few years ago, it's actually issued 4 million notices for removal of child sex abuse images. Four million of them. In light of this, the Canadian Centre has put out a call again this morning to industry to take action against this epidemic. Lloyd Richardson is the IT director for the Canadian Centre for Child Protection and joins us now. Good morning, Lloyd. 
Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for coming on. It's such an important topic, and I know it can be challenging for some and, and incredibly disturbing to work, I can imagine, at times. So let's go back to the beginning of Project Arachnid. Explain to folks how it works and, and what's, the, what's, the, what's it intended to do. Yeah, so about um, two and a half to three years ago, we sort of pivoted on what uh, what we did here at the tip line at cybertip.ca. So traditionally, we would accept reports from the public relating to the online sexual exploitation of children. Um, so this this effort is sort of um, a pivot on that, as I said. We're, we're doing more proactive work to detect it before the public finds it. That's not to say that we're not we're not still operating the tip line in that, that function. We certainly are. There's certainly still value in public reporting, but we realize that um, through technology, we're able to find more of this material and uh, act more quickly on it to take it down. And I think some of the numbers that you just, uh, that you just stated sort of articulate that the idea that um, in the last two and a half or two and a half years we've sent four million notices really indicates a really large problem so um, more to your your original question um, basically what it is is an entire platform to reduce the public availability of child sexual abuse material um, and we're doing that more so from the the victim perspective than the law enforcement perspective the idea is that we're project directed is not initially designed as a, a mechanism to put offenders in jail it's more as a mechanism to remove this material so that we don't have this recurring trauma that's happening to victims that have their material exchanged ad infinitum on the internet these notices that you're sending out, who are they going to? Um, there's a whole varied set of providers. So um, we have about 300 registered electronic service providers, we call them, um, around the world that we send these notices to. And it ranges from uh, companies that you would uh, you would already know about, some big tech companies, as well as smaller companies, mid-sized companies. There's really, it's, it's any company that accepts what we call user-generated content or, or things where users can upload material. Um, any of those platforms will eventually be abused in this way. So that's, that's why we, we really encourage industry to do proactive measures to be able to filter this, this type of material instead of waiting to have someone, someone else point out that, hey, you've got this problem on your platform. I can appreciate it. it's such a huge problem. And then there's so many sites and, and websites that can be hosting some of these images. But there's part of me that thinks, okay, well, do they not know that these images are out there? Why aren't they just themselves going after any of these uh, sites or the users or the people that are posting them? I mean, why would you have to notify them? Or is the problem just so big that they don't even know they exist sometime? Yeah, it's sort of a mixed response to that question. Um, and industry really varies in this in this area. There's there's certain um, electronic service providers that do absolutely nothing in terms of proactive work. So they literally wait for someone to tell them that they have a problem on their system. There are some industry members that do um, proactive work in terms of they have these hash values or fingerprints of images where they're able to detect stuff that's known um, to be child sexual abuse material, and they will they will remove that from their systems. But if I'm being totally honest it's a little bit of a, a mixed sort of response. Even in the cases where you have industry that, that is doing proactive work, I think there's still a lot of room for improvement in that, in that space. So 4 million notices go out. I see over two years, Project Arachnid has flagged 10 million images of suspected child pornography. That is a lot of imagery. Like, So who, or like, it, it, that must be tedious having to go through all this stuff to, to find all of these images. Yeah, it is. And uh, if I'm being completely honest, that 10 million number, we, we, um, we have a bit of a backlog. We have analysts that have to actually view this type of material. And um, 
on top of that, we, we triple that up. So that, that means we have to have three individual analysts actually verify that an image is actually child sexual abuse material. So you start doing the math on that, and it, it's a bit incomprehensible in terms of the amount of human labor required there. Um, that's why we've brought in other tip lines around the world to basically assist us with this backlog of information that we need to to process. So we've we've actually signed on a few other countries to uh, assist us with this classification process. We have seven countries around the world that all assist us here in in Little Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada to uh, to work with this backlog. We're quite proud of the of the way that this is developing. Great work that you do. It's disgusting, really, to think about the fact that there's that many images and that you could have all the staff and you're potentially barely scratching the surface of this. You mentioned that you don't necessarily want to go after the perpetrators. It's not about getting cracking down on the crime, but helping the victims themselves. And I know over the years, you've also shared stories from some of these victims. It's not just about recovering from the abuse, but the fact that knowing that that picture or that video or that image is out there is really about that cycle of being re-victimized over and over again. Have you heard from any over the years in terms of what it's meant to them to be able to get that image off the site or off the internet? Yeah, uh, we're certainly careful talking about like totals in terms of um, the amount of images per victim and what have you. But yeah, we've had some very heartfelt um, stories back from from victims relating to Project Directed saying, hey, this is knowing that this is out there, um, assisting assisting with the removal of these images. It's, it's really a, a comfort to them to know that something's being done in that space. Lloyd Richardson is the IT director for the Canadian Centre for Child Protection. Thank you very much for joining us this morning on this important issue. Thank you. It was an absolute pleasure. It is the final push for the 2019 Tri-Hospital Dream Lottery. The final deadline, midnight tonight, trihospitaldream.com. Greg Mackling, who is on vacation this week, at least from the start, he's going to be on location this afternoon for the Tri-Hospital Lottery at the HSC Thorlaxen Mall from 1 until 5 p.m., where if you have not bought a ticket yet, you can still get a ticket. There are seven amazing grand prize options and a whole bunch of other stuff that you can get in on. But to tell you about this and to maybe give you some motivation as to why these lotteries are so important, we have in studio with us a man named Dwight McMillan who benefited from the care of HSE. Dwight, welcome to you, sir. Thank you for joining us. You're more than welcome, sir. So you were airlifted from Brandon to Health Sciences Centre in Winnipeg. First of all, when did this happen? Uh, February of 2015. What happened? I was uh, life flighted from Brannon uh, with severe pancreatitis. That's how it all began. So was it something that you were aware you had in terms of the condition and it just worsened? Uh, and you're at hospital at the time when this went? I, w- I went was in Brandon for two months and uh, they uh, realized that I needed some more acute care, so... They, I was fortunate enough to get life flighted to Winnipeg, the HSC. When they say you have to get on a plane, does, what, what goes through your head? Because that sounds far more urgent than perhaps just sitting in your hospital bed. Yeah, not too much went through my mind, believe it or not, because at that point I was basically not coherent. So uh, my wife was the one that was, that was going through her mind what was next. Pancreatitis, uh, what sort of symptoms were you experiencing? Uh, just a s- sharp pain in the in the upper abdomen is basically the first symptoms you you have. 
And then you had to be, t- why did they need to take you? You said you needed more acute care at yeah. HSC. So how long were you at HSC? I was in HSC for 15 months. Uh, most of them was in II intensive care, and some of them were in SI, surgical intensive care. When you're in hospital for that length of time, for something serious like that, you, you must go through all sorts of things in terms of emotions and where you're thinking you're going to go. What's key to you to keeping you, besides your lovely wife who's sitting beside you, I'm guessing that's helpful, but... You didn't just roll your eyes, did you? No, no. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> You're processing my question. But who just shushed me? Um, <laughs> wasn't me. But uh, the, what, what's going through your mind when you're trying to figure out how, how to navigate the entire system? Is there someone that's key to helping you through that? Or is it just the host of people that are there for you each and every day? Well, yes, that's, that's the main part. There was a host of people. And HSC, the folks there, looked after the psychological side every step of the way with myself and more so my wife because she was there. She drove in from Clear Lake to Winnipeg every Friday to meet with the doctors for 15 months. And they would go over the diagnosis, what happened last week, what's going to happen this week. So I I knew at that point that things were going to get done and I was going to be looked after. Now, they didn't just deal with... Your symptoms and and this <clears throat> situation that you're dealing with with your pancreatitis, but it was also the result. There were some other things that happened. You were there so long, you lost a, a bunch of muscle mass, right? Like to the point where was it you couldn't even get out of bed? I lost eighty pounds, and and quite a bit was muscle mass. I couldn't even scratch my nose at one point. That's how weak I was. Yeah. And the HSC helped you deal with that as well to sort of nurse fully nurse you back to health. Yes, uh, their physio department's just second to none, and I have to thank those gals and guys there because, well, they got me motivated or I wouldn't have got out of bed. Basically, I was, at that point, I was pretty beat up after, that was after about 13 months, I was pretty beat up and just basically wanted people to leave me alone. Can I ask your wife a question? I'm sorry, I I said you could sit, we were going to do this, but I just wanted to ask because you brought in the whole point about the family. So you have your physical side where you're trying to recover from all that, and then you have to do all this work just logistically, I'm guessing, thinking out and how to get through that. And so for you, the team becomes a different thing that you're talking to. It's not just about his prognosis, but all the other things you have to think. All the other things that came along with it and just being on top of everything because I'm the type that asks a lot of questions and they were really, really good on answering all the questions. Even the kids would ask questions, and, and they took the time to to explain things to them. How, how much of a difference is that in that moment? Because the stress must be just right up to the oh, top. Unbelievable. Like, when I left HSC to go back home, I didn't have a worry because I knew he was well looked after. So be, him being there, they were the best care that he had and and they were consistent on phoning me and if something happened today they would make sure they called me and and told me so you can't ask for that kind of care so you would drive in from clear lake every friday stay the weekend i guess yes which is three hour drive i just want to point out by the way one way yeah Mm -hmm. i would leave home at six o'clock on the friday morning get there you know 10 ish and then we'd stay at the canad inns and leave on Sunday at 2 o'clock because there was quiet time in, in IICU for two hours, so I would leave at that. And it is hard to leave because, I mean, you don't get to see them for the whole week again, and it's it's hard. You know, it's hard on everybody because it's not your normal way of life. And Dwight, you know, 15 months in the hospital is a long time. Did you ever... 
feel despair, like where you thought, am I ever going to get out of here? Uh, many times, many times. It, it, like I said, it was a roller coaster ride. You'd you'd feel like the end was uh, the end was near in more ways than one, and then you were going to get out, and and then you felt, well, if I do get out, what what'll I be like? What my condition would be? So the emotions that run through your head are just crazy because you have tons of time to think when you're there, of course, right? Mm. And when you when I had questions or problems or had those thoughts, there was a nurse, a doctor. I mean, I, I want to say it again, the psychological side of the folks at HSC, right from the the head uh, right down to the cleaning staff and everybody in between just looked after the psychological side, which is most is as important as the medical side. Pretty hard to get better if your mind's yeah, not there. That's, that's right, because the mind's a big thing, plays a big part. Too. And how are you now, if I can ask? I'm very well. I still uh, got a few issues. I still go to physiotherapy, but... Uh, um, um, I'd say 90% back to where I was, I guess. And, and how was the pancreatitis? Well, I, I had 80% of my pancreas removed, and uh, things are working fairly well. So, yeah, it's not too bad. Dwight McMillan and his wife Joanne joining us live on 680 CJOB. And again, they are here because it is the final push for the 2019 Tri-Hospital Dream Lottery. The final deadline is midnight tonight. There are seven grand prize options that you can win. We got to visit one of the homes, Loren McNabb. It is spectacular. And Greg Mackling is going to be on location at the HSC Thorlickson Mall this afternoon from 1 until 5 p.m. where you can go buy a ticket in person and get in because the deadline is midnight tonight. Dwight and Joanne, thank you very much for joining us today. We appreciate this visit. And glad to to know that you're doing okay, Dwight. Thank you, sir. Another website you can check out, winnipegfolkfestival.ca. I know this is an annual rite of passage for many, Lorraine, the Folk Fest out in uh, Bird's Hill. It's underway as we speak. And to tell us a bit what's up on the slate for this weekend and hopefully some nice weather with it, we're joined by Winnipeg Folk Festival Artistic Director Chris Freyer. Good morning, Chris. Good morning. So are you at the site right now at Birds Hill or on your way? No, no. I'm just uh, heading into the office to tie up some loose ends, and then I'll be uh, heading out uh, later on uh, this afternoon. So the, is it officially started as we speak, or is it a couple hours away? Yes. No, um, no. main stage will start tonight at, uh, at 7, but the, um, uh, the, the camp was loaded in yesterday. They started at like 8 in the morning yesterday. So there's already thousands of people uh, at the park, Um all getting into the well, the three the three campgrounds that we've got. There's the Bird Hill Provincial Campground, the Quiet Camping, and Festival Camping. So there's probably about eight thousand people or more uh, that are uh, camped out there already. It's one of my favorite things. I think someone sent us a photo yesterday, four a.m. You know, the sun's barely up, and people are in line to get their coveted camping spots. It's quite the tradition. It is. I mean, especially because there's uh, shades at a premium. Uh, in festival camping, so people like to kind of get their spots. And then uh, friends like to, you know, make a tradition out of camping with each other every year, so they like to get their favorite spot. So, and you know what? People take off time off of work to uh, to attend, to volunteer. Um, and, all you know, so people really, you know, make make, make time for it every year um, in their busy life just to kind of get away for four days out to the park, so... How does it work with the camping? If you if you want to camp, like, do you purchase a camping pass ahead of time? But then, once you get there, you 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 have to just kind of fight for the best spot. 
Um, yeah, it is first come, first served uh, in the quiet and festival camping. The only reserve camping that's available is the Birdsville Provincial uh, Campground. Oh, so but, um, people, yeah, people buy them in advance. They sold out weeks ago. Um, we sold out about 7,000 of them uh, three weeks ago, which is earlier than last year. Uh, but then they just they, they buy them in advance, uh, and you can buy an RV ticket in addition to the camping if you want to take an RV in. And then with an RV, you get like a tent. And you get a, a room for a tent and a dining tent as well next to your RV. So, um, and of course, RV gets popular. As older you get, the less inclined you are to uh, sleep <laughs> on uh, on the ground. <laughs> 7,000 7, camping passes were purchased? Yeah. That is incredible. And that's yeah, great. That, I mean, that, that's huge. That's just one. That's just that one festival camping. And that includes, of course, that includes our volunteer I'm volunteers as well, but we have almost another thousand campers in the quiet camping, and another, you know, another thousand or so in the uh, Brazil. So yeah, we're probably looking around nine thousand people at, at some point, you know, out there. And then uh, of course our day trippers, uh, we've sold you know, obviously a ton of day tickets. So we're we're it's going to be busy. It looks like it's going to be on par to be another record year. Let's talk about some of the musical acts that you have coming, some pretty yeah. big names. that Run through a few of them for us and, and maybe tell us, is there one that you're really looking forward to seeing? Um, yeah, well, of course, I'm, you know, my big kind of coup for the year was getting, uh, was getting Casey Musgraves, uh, who won four Grammys, including uh, Country Album of the Year and Album of the Year at the, uh, at the Grammys this year. And I booked that back in September, and her show is phenom- phenomenal. So I'm looking forward to seeing that. Um, tonight I'm looking forward to seeing Death Cab for Cutie from uh, Bellingham, Washington. They've never played a headline show here before, so I'm looking forward to that. Um, I'm looking forward to this band from Virginia called Car Seat Headrest, who are playing on Friday night. Um, and then, of course, there's like another 70 bands. Of course, I'm a fan of all of them because I booked all of them. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, there's... There's, you know, there's. I have a, a special project from. I have four bands that came from Reykjavik, Iceland, because um, I went to Iceland in November. So we've got a big Icelandic component to kind of, uh, you know, to tie into our to Manitoba's history of Icelandic settlement in uh, here and the fact that so many Manitobans share that heritage. And uh, so I've got four very distinct kind of bands that are doing a thing called Icelandic sounds. I'm looking forward to seeing that. So, yeah, there's, there's a there's a ton going on and. We just really want people to come out if they haven't been before and just, you know, and, and, and see what the fuss is all about. Um, even just people watching alone is awesome. You know, just if, you know, if you just come out there and grab a seat and watch everybody go by, it's, it's actually pretty, it can be pretty hilarious well, in and of itself. Good people watching. They're, you know, because yeah. people, people are fun to watch dancing. There would be a few antics. You might, you know, it would be like having a little movie in front of you. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Um <laughs> I wanted to also mention too, like we do twelve and under is free, and we do have amazing kids programming area at the the Chickadee Big Top stage at the festival. So families should feel welcome to bring their kids, and of course you can bring these strollers, and you can bring in some uh, some uh, water and some eats and stuff too. It's a very family friendly event, um, and I think that's actually one of the secrets of our success is that there's something. I think they say it's like one of the only places you can actually take your teenage kids where they're not embarrassed of you. 
<laughs> well, <No>. the name, <laughs> the name, the Winnipeg Folk Festival. Do you ever get anybody say to you like, "Oh, this isn't quite what I pictured"? Because like I've been to the folk festival. Uh, I went to see Elvis Costello. Uh, I don't know, eight or nine years ago. Yeah, yeah and like yeah. the 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 lineup of music that you have is so eclectic. Like it wouldn't be what I would traditionally think of as just folk music. No, no, and it's morphed a lot, and I think I think a lot of it. I mean, this is my fifteenth year doing this. Um, Two thousand five was my first year. The, the festival just changed changed dramatically in, the, in these years. But I think in an effort to try to regenerate, you know, the audience and to really reach out to the younger demographic, we've programmed uh, a lot of a little bit more indie music and stuff that. You know, that appeals to a college age crowd. Um, I think I think that um, we're what I, I I'm we're really more focused on the community that we create at the festival, and a little bit less about always about the message that's conveyed off the stage. We just really want to create a good sense of community and just have really good music that reinforces our values and stuff. So you're right. It's I mean we're doing a big um, Pete Seeger's hundredth birthday hoot nanny this year at the festival because he would have been a hundred. This year, and that's of course he's like the granddaddy of folk music. So we still we still have a good way to reach back into our, you know, into our into our folk tackle box and find you know some some good hooks that are like, you know, just uh, that, that that you know we got John Sebastian coming who played Woodstock and right uh, in 1969. It's the 50th anniversary of Woodstock, so John Sebastian will be there. That's a that's a bit more for the boomer generation. Um, so yeah, we, and we still have lots of string bands, bluegrass bands and, uh, singer songwriters. So yeah, I think there's going to be, you know, something for, like we say, I know it sounds cliche to say something for everyone, but I really feel like that's kind of, kind of what it's about. And then it's like that whole package of being out at beautiful Birch Hill Park and, and a nice hot weekend in July that really appeals to people in, in and of itself. So yeah. Well, and one of the things, too, that I found really appealing about it when I went, uh, because I, I confess I've only been out one time, but I what I really enjoyed was, like, I remember being in the sort of the food court area where everyone was gathered, and you talk about that sense of community. A lot of times when you go to huge outdoor events like this, you sort of get that feeling like, you know, there's a bunch of dudes being bros, you know, we got to bro yeah. down with our shirts off yeah. and chug some beers, but you just, like... You, I just felt so relaxed and comfortable and everyone was happy and uh, it just was, a, it was kind of a, it felt unique to other major outdoor events like this. Yeah, it is. And I think that's like the family aspect of it. We also, our statistics are, we weigh really heavy on, um, our, like the, on gender for female. Gender is like 60, at least 60% or more of our audience are, are women. Or, or, so it's like, it kind of helps tone down that, you know, the, the, the bro dude kind of culture that really kind of actually can be intimidating to people when they're at an event, like you're talking about, there's not like that. It doesn't have that at it. So I think that's kind of an, it's really, it, it really is a welcoming environment for people of all ages to come. I mean, we have, we have babies coming this year and we have like, you know, uh, you know, 90 year olds coming this year. I actually have a friend who's coming in from Toronto today to help, uh, host one of our stages, and he's he just had his 85th birthday last week. So we've got people. We have people from all. You know, it's it's. And you know what? Festival Express from York and Memorial is a free service, a free bus service that brings you out to the festival too. I should mention that so that. And we have uh, every other bus I think will be accessible for for people that are uh, that that need accessibility. But it's a great way to get out for free all the way out to Birdsill Park, and of course you can take it back. 
to the city. So if you can make your way down downtown Winnipeg, you can take the you know the the, the bus out there for free. And again, twelve and under free, and it's you know it's looking like it's going to be kind of a classic Winnipeg weekend where you know it looks a little dodgy at times with the thunder showers, but it looks like we're we're going to have generally good weather all weekend. So we want people to prepare for that. Chris Freyer, Winnipeg Folk Festival Artistic Director. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Great chat with you. Have fun this weekend. Thank you. Thanks. Bye, guys. And again, the website is winnipegfolkfestival.ca. And the list of performers, like you go to the the lineup, click on performers, and it's just scroll, scroll, Mm -hmm. Plus, I think it's really, he makes the point about, you know, he doesn't want to have the cliche, it's, something for everyone, but its appeal now is that when I was younger and I used to look at the lineup, unless I was into that specific genre, I, I didn't know what I was seeing. Whereas yeah. now there's a couple things where I'm like, yep, yep, I do that, I do this, and so it's nice in that way too. Such a great place just to hang out, period. Yeah. I like his idea of parking a lawn chair and just watching the world go by. Yeah, that, that would be a, another relaxing way to do it. Plus, where they have their main stage, it's like this natural amphitheater, mm-hmm. right? Where it's uh, the trees on either side. And uh, yeah, it's just a, it's a cool place. And I really would like to get back there one day. But for those who are heading out there this weekend, have a good time. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think. And hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG. That's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global. And on Instagram, at McNab on C-J-O-B. Talk soon.